Morning, church. Morning. Uh, my name is Stephen Wetzel. Uh, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, dear God, I just thank you so much uh, just for this awesome day. God, just the chance to worship you. Uh, God, just to come together as brothers and sisters. Lord, I just pray that uh, we can really approach your word with humility, God, with soft hearts. Uh, God, that you can really just uh, impact us, God, with, with the strength of your love. Uh, God, and, and, and just, just the power of grace. Uh, Lord, I just pray that we can all approach this moment with humility and self-reflection. Uh, it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. So, I, I was originally going to preach on Steve Urkel, but <laughs> Seth took that away, so we're going to go in a different direction. Uh, open up your Bibles to 1 John. <laughs> I've never heard a communion that had both Steve Urkel and John Mayer in it, and that was fantastic. <laughs> Uh, that, that, was, that was just amazing. But we're going to go a little bit further back in history than Family Matters. Uh, back, back to the, the, uh, the, the first century, all right? The year 90, 95, all right? Nine, nine, 90 to 95-ish, all right? Uh, now, this is a time that it, it, it's a very interesting time in the history of the church. It's a time where really all the disciples are looking at a time of transition, fast approaching, because at this moment, in the year 95, all the apostles have been killed. Save one, the Apostle John. And it's actually not because they didn't try to kill John. They tried to kill him a number of times, and they failed. He's just insanely lucky, or with God, has the Holy Spirit, something like that. Uh, but at this moment, John is the only person still left alive on the face of the earth who has been trained personally by Jesus. And even more than that, of the 120 that, that Jesus appeared to after the resurrection, most of them are dead, if not all. And so potentially, he's the last living relic of that age. He's the last living connection that the church has with the physical resurrected Jesus. And as John, he's leading the church in Ephesus at this time, and as he kind of surveys the religious landscape around him, he sees a number of threats. Things that are cropping up that threaten the future of the church. And Seth already touched, this, touched on this a little bit. Uh, one of these groups uh, is a Jewish group who is going around preaching that Jesus is actually not the Messiah. Now they believe Jesus, that he was from God, but they don't say that he was actually the son of God, that he's actually the Messiah. That's obviously problematic yeah. uh, for a number of reasons. But on the other side of that spectrum, you actually have a group who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't believe in his physicality. Right. Right. And this group called the Gnostics that, that Seth touched on, they really did believe that it's this Greek idea that the physical world, our flesh, uh, everything you can touch, the tangible world around us is inherently evil. That the only thing that actually matters is knowledge. And so they preach that, you know, at baptism, what you get isn't so much the regeneration of your soul. Uh, well, not the regeneration and freedom from sin. They don't think that you have freedom from sin. They just think that you are liberated from ignorance. And they believe that all you have to do is know God and you'll be fine. And anything you do with your physical body has no worth on this earth. And so basically they're preaching, just live it up. Do whatever you want. What you do has no consequences. It just matters what you think. And this opened up a whole realm. This opened up so much sin yeah. 
Uh, you know, so much possibility for sin for followers of this Gnostic movement. Uh, and it's actually kind of interesting because today, if you even look at modern Christianity, this is an idea that still permeates the world today. Very interesting because if you look out and you see a lot of people just preach, it doesn't matter what you do, what do you believe? As long as you believe, as long as you have, have this knowledge of God, what you do is actually not so much important. And people preach this from, from a similar place of actually, this is more philosophically sophisticated. We've moved beyond legalism. We don't need to follow these rules as long as we know God. And as John is looking and sees these threats uh, to the early church, he knows that he's the last person who with authority can say, no, that's not true. Why? Because I knew Jesus. And he's the last person who can say that with any authority. And this is the context with which he writes 1 John. As this last defender of the faith. And it's even more scary because he knows I'm an old man. They've tried to kill me multiple times. I am not long for this world. And so what we get here in 1 John is John's, almost his last defense of the faith against these issues that are still plaguing us today. Let's read what he has to say. 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 3. Okay. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Another translation, it says, this old command is the new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness, but he does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And so what what John writes here, if you actually want to know God, you know, have this precious knowledge of God, what do you have to do? Obey his commands. And John, in, in a number of ways, you know, he really, he draws this line in the sand. Hence this fantastic image I found on the internet. Uh, he really puts his flag in the ground and draws this line in the sand. And he doesn't, you know, just say you have to obey the, uh, the commands to know God. But if you don't obey the commands, 
yet claim that, you are a liar. That's convicting. And it's crazy, you know, seven or eight times in this small book, John makes these very intense black and white, clear-cut claims, just draws a line, says, you're on this side or you're on this side. If you're doing this, you're with God. If you're doing that, you are not. You know, he, he's, he's drawing this, this, this very clear distinction between these two groups of who's with God and who is not. Who's in and who is out. Who is living in light and who is living in darkness. And three of those times come in this, in this very small passage of this very small book. And just kind of re-go over those in, you know, verse 4 to 6. You know, he says, Whoever says I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And he says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. And finally, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. And I think at least in this section, I think these really kind of escalate in terms of how convicting they are. You know, on the first one, it's kind of easy to like worm our way a little bit around this one. It's like, I obey some of the commands, you know, like uh, <laughs> the next one, it, it kind of seems ambiguous. It's like, well, I don't hate my brothers and sisters, but the question is, do you love them? And he really makes this actually a lot clearer right. later in the book. You know, and one of these uh, where we really want to put ourselves in the middle here okay. and we say, oh, well, I don't hate and I don't love. I'm kind of in the middle. But he makes it really clear later in chapter 3. He says, actually, anyone who does not love remains in death. Wow. There's not this middle ground here. and it, it, it's, it's almost like a failure to love is the equivalent of hate. Right. Uh, and it, it reminds me by this quote, uh, or of this quote by uh, Elie Wiesel, uh, which I learned uh, from a song by the Lumineers, yes. uh, <laughs> that the opposite of love is indifference. Yes. Right. Yes. Like, ooh, how many people are you indifferent about yeah. in this room? Yeah. And you look around and it's just like, I don't hate them. I'm not like, my heart doesn't go out to them. How many people are you indifferent for? Wow. How many people do you really love? No, and, then, and, then, and then he goes on and clarifies later. He actually, and, you know, and Seth mentioned this as well, that, you know, love is what Christ has done. He laid his life down for us so we should lay our lives down for the brothers. Yeah. That's convicting. That's a high calling. Yeah. But then we get to this, uh, this last one where it says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And I think this one is automatically a bit intense. Yeah. Uh, in, in a very obvious kind of way, like do not love anything in the world. This should really start to make us think yeah. about which side of this line we're really on. Because John has dr- he's drawn this very clear cut line. He's either you're on this side or you're on that side. And the question that he's begging us to answer and really self-reflect on is, which side are you on? And it's, it's terrifying sometimes because he even says, you know, like, if you don't love your brothers, you're actually living in darkness. And the darkness has blinded you. So you don't know where you're going. He's like, take a look around you. Really try to see. Really try to think. Where are you? Are you blinded because you're not on the right side of the line? I think there, there, there are a number of questions that we can ask ourselves, you know, to, to really self-reflect. And I just want to encourage you guys to kind of go back and, uh, you know, think about this. 
uh, you know, and just kind of going through these is, okay, do you really obey God? And the question is, how committed are you to that? Because it's easy to obey a few commands. But are you really committed to that? And that's a matter of integrity, just in the sense of like, okay, if you know that there's something in your life that's not quite matching up to the standard, talk to somebody about that. Get that out in the open. Live up to that. But then I think in, in this area of self-deception, sometimes we don't even know right. whether or not we are obeying. Right. And do we have the humility and the commitment to the standard where we're willing to open ourselves up on, and ask people that know our lives intimate, intimately, what do you see that I am not living up to? Opening ourselves up to see, okay, how can I get input? What are the blind spots in my life where I'm actually not living to the standard? How can others help me to get onto the right side of that line? You know, asking questions like, what can I grow in? Do you see sin in my life? The next question is, okay, how much energy do we really put into loving people? You know, do you only love people that you're comfortable loving? You know, do you, I mean, it's easy to gravitate towards people that give back to us, right? People that we feel validated by, people that we feel that when we give input, we get output, you know, back, right back at us. You know, what do we do when love is actually hard? When we don't feel immediately loved back or validated, do you shrink back? And I think that's what I see in myself more and more is that if I'm not seeing results or kind of like indication that like what I'm doing is kind of hitting, I'm like, I'm out of there. Just naturally, like in my heart, I'm just like, not worth it. Let me not be vulnerable in that way. I'm just going to get out of there. But the love of Christ is to love in that vulnerable way. Are we really doing that? Uh, you know, then we get to this final one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. And this is, this is probably the biggest struggle out of the three because it's so broad and it really encompasses both of these other things. No, this idea of worldliness and and for all of us, you know, just in terms of how much do we love the world? How much do we idolize physical comforts? How much do we idolize, you know, how much do, you know, things like Netflix and and television uh, and just taking it easy, honestly, and and just like being entertained and and falling into this, this temptation of, I'm just going to turn my brain off for a minute, just kind of tune out and just kind of escape from the problems of the world instead of going to God with those things. And do those things come in the way of us praying, of us, you know, uh, evangelizing, of us, you know, getting deep with each other? You know, do we, do we have problems and then start with escapism and comfort and just kind of escaping from the world? Or do we have problems and do we start with prayer and confession? Do we idolize those things? You know, do we idolize success? You know, whether it's grades or your job, you know, just this idea of getting security out of those tangible things. Getting security out of, okay, I'm going to get these grades and then I will get a good job and I will be set. My parents will be proud of me and this will say certain things about me and I will get a good job and I'll be set for my life. Do we get our security from those things? And and, and do things like grades get in between us and our pursuit of God? You know, and just even in terms of our jobs, you know, is our job an excuse not to come to things, Uh, not to uh, be giving? We're just like, and I've, I've been there in that temptation of like working like a 13 hour day and just being like, I don't really want to give to people right now. I'm a little exhausted. So I'm going to use my time to recharge. I'm going to use my time so that I have enough instead of pouring myself out for people. It's idolizing comfort. Uh, and, you know, being able to put energy into my job rather than being put, able to put energy into others. Right. You know, and when push comes to shove, do you choose school or work over God? 
You know, is that your excuse not to live radically? And, and, and for the parents, and just disclosure, or full, full disclaimer, I, I do not have small children or humans of my own, uh, but I have talked to people who do and are of that stage of life who have given me input uh, in this. You know, the question is, do you idolize worldly success for your kids? And that's extremely deceptive. And I was even thinking about that because I was like, that sounds selfless to like put your kids above you. And that's like, that, that's a good thing for sure is putting your kids above you. But do you idolize their worldly success over their spiritual success? And I'm not even a parent, and I, I already can see how that's tough. So I don't even know, like, having your kid, that's a whole other struggle. So props to you. But that's a, real, that's a real struggle, you know. And are you, is your kid, are you showing your kid that spiritual success is more important than worldly success? Or are their activities, their success, are, are they your excuse not to live radically? Not to come to things, not to be giving to other disciples because we're like, man, they got to get into a great college and they got to be the next LeBron James and all this other stuff. You know, are, are they being shown that spiritual success is so much is going to outlast all that other stuff? You know, and this idea of worldliness, it, it really is, it can be encompassed in how much do we blend into those around us? You know, we have to ask the question, you know, if you look at your life, is there something about the way you live that is a little bit out there that people can see? You know, if someone followed you around, would they think, wow, this guy clearly doesn't love the world. He's clearly not on board with what the rest of us are doing. There's something weird and different about him. And the question, if the answer to that is no, someone might not do that, then we might not actually be on the side of the line that we want to be on. And I've just been grateful to to be able to reflect on this passage and be able to prepare this lesson. Because honestly, I've been convicted by a lot of these questions myself recently. Uh, Just looking at my own life. And I think before when I was a campus minister, uh, it was very easy to put myself on that right side of the line. And it was easy to say like, yes, like I am super set apart. Because literally my whole day is going around sharing my faith and like being in Bible studies and having D times. Uh, and it, my, my job is literally to stand out. Right. My job is to be on this side of the line yeah. and to be out in front and be the crazy guy and lead the charge. And having taken a step out of ministry, yeah. uh, things obviously changed in that regard. Right. Uh, and this, there, there's been, I've had to, it hasn't been pre-built into my schedule to live that way. Right. And that's been a, a radical transition of life. And, you know, this whole stage of my life has been really, it's been a ton of transition. Right. Uh, you know, moving back to Charlottesville and being in a new ministry and finding a new job and even figuring out how to do that job. Uh, and to be honest, like the beginning of the summer was rather a rough time for me emotionally with all the transition I was going for. Uh, but I think as like the dust has kind of settled and as I've, I've kind of like gotten down the hill and back into the valley of, of, of life and kind of just had, had security in my life, I think I've realized, you know, how much that time of transition, I just kind of gave myself a pass in a lot of ways. And I meant at, at certain points, I was really just fighting to kind of stay afloat in my relationship with God. And I think it wouldn't be so concerning if it wasn't so tempting to let that pass continue. And it wouldn't be so concerning if I wasn't tempted to keep my foot off the gas pedal. And I, I realize as I've kind of settled into this new stage of life that I, I am very satisfied being comfortable. Yeah. 
Uh, and I've spent so much time just kind of like in turmoil and fighting and transitioning and trying to like figure out like my new life that honestly, I just kind of want to take a breath and just be like, okay, let me just like take it easy for a minute while I can before the next thing comes along. And I realized, you know, I, like, man, like I've kind of grown soft in like my, the focus I've had on my evangelism and I've, I haven't been fighting just to have vision for the kingdom. And I've grown very self-focused and very self-protective even on all of that. Uh, and I've gotten used to just blending in and kind of just having a worldly mindset. Even just like in my job, it's just easy just to blend in and just kind of like uh, just kind of fit in and just not, not be like overtly sinful, but not try to like stand out and not try to like push the envelope with my coworkers. And the comfort of routine and stability is just so tempting. And it reminds me, and forgive me for doing this, but it reminds me of this quote from this movie. Uh, I don't know, you know, you might not have heard of it, uh, but the, the Dark Knight Rises. Come on, Steven. <laughs> All right, uh, one, of, one of my favorite film franchises. <laughs> if you don't know about this, it's a, it's a Batman movie. All right, and so the context is like, kind of similarly, there's been this time of like relative peace. Like Batman hasn't really been needed for a while. All right, and everything is kind of just like good in the city. There's not a lot of crime. And so Batman is kind of like taken off the cape, taken off the mask, and he's just kind of like laid low for a while. And he's kind of like licked his wounds and just sat back. But there's finally this crisis, and this villain comes in, and he's trying to basically like destroy the whole city. And so he has to come out of retirement. Uh-huh. And so there's this one fight, and Batman, like this is his like first big thing since he's like gotten out of retirement, and he's just wailing, and the, the villain's name is Bane. And he's wailing on him and punching him, and Bane is just letting him go to town on him. And it's doing nothing. And his best efforts are just not good enough. And the villain actually said something quite profound, even out of the context of this movie. Uh, And he says, Peace has cost you your strength. Victory has defeated you. And that's one of the more epic lines, I think, in movie history. But... I was just astounded by this quote and really thinking about it, you know, like basically you're losing this fight because you've gave in to peace. You've given in to comfort. You've given in to stability and you've grown weak because of it. And I, I, in thinking about all this, I realized that I was in danger of this and just in danger of just taking a breather and just kind of sink into comfort and routine and having this time of relative peace really like take me in and defeat me by taking a step back. And it's just so easy to you know, just to sit back and just to worry about work and, and make money and just think about the things that I want to do. And I was in danger and still am of this time of relative peace defeating me, you know, of pulling me in. And I think honestly, because our struggles can get so intense, peace and quiet can get seductive. Right. Uh, you know, we're, we're hard pressed on every side to pick the worldly side of this line and you know, it's like it, it seems like it's like this no-win situation because like either we're struggling and it's very tempting to take a step back and like make things easier for ourselves or things are easy after that we're like all right let me just take a step back and just breathe for a minute and i think that's probably why john is so intense about drawing this line because honestly i think sometimes we need that black and white and we need that line in the sand to really expose things and to show us where we truly are i think that's what john's trying to do uh, and, and he plants this flag in the ground very clearly. And why? Because he knows he won't always be there to guide them. So they need a marker to show them how far they've strayed from the truth. So that they know how to get back to it and cling to it. 
And he's like, I'm not going to be here very much longer, but here's this line. Here's how you know. Be on this side. And I think, you know, reflecting on all this, this needs to be a wake-up call for us. If we need that wake-up call, and if, if we look and see what side of the line we're actually on, that needs to provoke a response. And I think no, it, it does, if we're convicted by that, it does provoke this natural response. I was like, okay, like, let me, let me just like cling to that and just run onto the other side. And I, I love this book because it just gives kind of very clear instruction of what yeah. to do. Yeah. You know, it's just like, let me just focus on doing that. But we actually have to be careful because there's, there's a danger in that response. And that's a very good response. But I think the danger lies in our motivation in that response. Because if our motivation to get on the other side of the line is strictly out of self-preservation, and it's strictly out of not wanting to reap the consequences of the wrong side of that line, we are going to burn out. We're going to do it quickly. But the question is, okay, what are, how are we really supposed to do this? And I love 1 John because it really appeals to like, kind of like the logical and analytical uh, portions of my mind where it's just like black and white, do and don't. But we have to add something more into the equation. And I, I just want to point out here something that John does. And it's fascinating. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the structuring of the letter. And it really stands out because of that. And John is writing and he's drawing this very clear distinction uh, between light and dark, between good and evil, between with God and not with God. And all of a sudden, before he actually gets to his most convicting point in this passage, he kind of takes a step back to clarify something extremely important. And again, structurally, this doesn't make a lot of sense, especially if you like look at how letters are usually written. Uh, and he writes in verse 12, almost like this introduction. We're going to go ahead and reread this. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. I just want to clarify here. You know, he, he says like children and young men and fathers, but he's not just like talking to the actual children and, and, and the men of the church. Really, he's just talking about these spiritual roles that at some point in our spiritual life, we will play. You know, being people who need to be taught, being young in the faith, being fathers who kind of shepherd people. We're all going to fulfill those roles. And all these things that he says apply to disciples. You know, if you've repented and been baptized, these things apply to us. But it's very interesting because it fits with almost nothing else that he has said. And I, I, I was writing in my preliminary notes, and you kind of like, you kind of get a sense for like where, for where the right area is going. And sometimes my notes are kind of just like stream of consciousness uh, when they first start out. And I'm kind of like just trying to figure out what's going on. And I, really, I wrote in my notes, what are you doing, you crazy old man? <laughs> I was just like, what is happening? <laughs> because he's gone from like convicting and he's like, let's just take a step back. And just talk about a couple other things. Uh, I was like, why does he do this? And it stands in such stark contrast. And you, you have to know at that point that this is vitally important. That he takes this step back. And he looks at this. And it's almost as if before John gets to his most convicting point, that he wanted to take a step back and remind them of something. And he's drawing this line in the sand, but then he's like, hold up. 
because I know what you're thinking and you're worried. He says, let me remind you, your sins have been forgiven. Let me remind you that you do know the Father. You are strong. The word of God lives in you. And through Christ, you have already overcome the evil one. And really, he, he's hinting at something that's, that he's going to talk a lot more about in the, later in this letter. He's just like, look, this isn't going to work unless you remember where you came from and what you are and what that means about the love of God and how God has already sacrificed everything to pull you on to that side of the line where God is. He says, you aren't going to be able to live on this side of the line unless you're convinced of this, unless you see that your sins have been forgiven, that God has loved you so much as to pull you onto this side of the line in the first place. Why is that so important? It's because honestly, if you're not convinced of God's love and his wholehearted love for you, if you're not convinced of his intense longing and care for you, you're not going to want to live on that side of the line. You're not going to want to live on God's side of that line because you won't believe that it's actually better to live on that side. And if your motivation is, I'm just trying to preserve myself, there's a whole bunch of fears that go into that. I'm just like, I don't know if I'm going to get taken care of. I don't know if it really, this is really going to pan out. It's just going to be a hard, slogging struggle. And if that's your motivation, you are going to burn out. Right. And I think it's so important that John points his audience backwards here. And he says, your sins have been forgiven. You have known God. Because I think as time goes on, you know, if you've been a disciple, and if you're not, you know, this is something to look forward to. You know, get yourself on that right side of the line. Let Jesus do that for you. But I think as time goes on, it is really easy to forget or play down the role that God's love has played in our lives. Right. And it's really hard to believe that God is still working like he was when he first forgave us and when our faith was still on fire. Uh, and this is, this is a picture of my desk at home. Uh, and I've got, I've got this wall uh, filled with postcards uh, and it's like all the places I've been and some of them are, have been uh, given to me by people who have been to places I haven't but the vast majority are, are, are places that I've been and most of them are from like ministry internships that I've been fortunate enough to do in Europe uh, by the grace of God uh, and each one kind of represents this reminder of God's love in a certain way right. just like an adventure I've been on or experience I've had or even a friend I've gained along the way uh, and this, this serves as the backdrop for my quiet times and I was, I was sitting down one day and I was reflecting on, on just like kind of where I was in my faith and this idea of like victory has defeated you and just kind of like the temptation to take it easy. Uh, and I, I wanted to start my quiet time off with a psalm and I kind of turned almost randomly to Psalm 77. Go ahead and turn over there. This will be the last passage we hit. Psalm 77. Verse 1. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and my soul refused to be comforted. I remembered you, O God, and I groaned. I mused, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. 
My heart mused and my spirit inquired, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appear, the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder, and your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And the writer, the writer here, he's struggling with this idea. And he's wrestling with this concept that somehow God has changed. Somehow the love of God has grown inconsistent. That somehow God has forgotten to be merciful or is no longer compassionate. And he, he gets to this interesting moment right in the middle of the psalm where, where he, he makes almost this, this conscious decision to remember who God is and what he has done and to cling to that. You know, saying, I will meditate on your works and consider all your mighty deeds. And he goes through and he lists all the amazing things that God has done for his people. And he's just like, I will focus on these and believe God because of them. And I was reading this and I I looked up, you know, at all these postcards. And I was just thinking, and I I don't usually like look, look at them and kind of remember, because it's it's easy to just like grow used to like something that's on your wall. But I was looking at these and I was thinking about all that God has done and kind of just like what this represents of like all the victories God has given me. And thinking about it, I got discouraged and I actually grew kind of sad. And I realized, I was like, why, why am I feeling this way? And I was just kind of like journaling and praying. And I was like, man, like, I don't believe deep down that God is working in my life as he was back then. And I realized, I was like, I don't really like, I don't really believe that God's compassion for me is consistent with what I saw during those times when I, when I was going on all of those adventures and I, I saw, you know, radical repentance and crazy, crazy uh, life experiences. And I realized I didn't really believe that God was going to work that way in my future. And I realized that that was keeping me from really stepping out and clinging to that side of the line. And in my head, like, I know, I knew, like, I need to share my faith more and I need to be more giving. I need to be more invested in people. But deep down, I realized it was like, I don't think God's going to back me up if I do that. And I don't think I'm going to see anything from that. I don't think God is going to provide the energy for me to be able to do that. And I don't think he's going to take care of me. 
that's something I'm still praying for, through and, and really just like trying to harness is just like, man, like it's the same God right. yesterday, today, and forever. And this is like, I've just like kind of journaled about like, okay, where are all the victories and the radical things that I've seen God do in my life? All the proof of his love. And just struggling to remember, like, it's the same God who finally like softened my heart enough to like finally repent and be baptized at the age of like 18 after like five years of studying the Bible. You know, it's the same God who, you know, brought a campus ministry that I was a part of where there were three disciples at UVA to like the thriving community is today. It's the same God where I saw five people get baptized within a month at that campus ministry where there were five of us and we doubled in size in the span of a month. You know, it's the same God who loved me enough to bring me back from the brink of walking away and show me more repentance than I I thought was imaginable and show me more love than I thought was possible and brought me screaming back onto the other side of that line when I was struggling in my faith. It's the same God who walked, who worked all those miracles to bring me on those adventures And, you know, it's the same God that is still working yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And it's, and most importantly, it's the same God who looked at us and saw us in our sin and our mess at our worst and decided that we were worth dying for. And that same God that first saw us and did that is still at work in our lives today. And that said we were worth sacrificing his son so we could live on his side of the line with him and know him and walk with him in true peace and true love and true redemption and comfort. And all that, writing, all that John is writing here is to live like we've been forgiven, is to live that reality. No, live like this God is on our side and live like this God sacrificed his son for us and live this reality that God will back us up And God will show us why it's so much better to live on his side of the line. And I just want to encourage you guys to look back at those victories that you've seen in your life, the the ways that God has loved you, but most importantly, that first victory of forgiveness. And if that is, if that isn't you, if you haven't repented and been baptized, you don't even know what that means. And you're not sure which side of the line you're really on. Talk to somebody about that because God desperately wants you over with him. He desperately wants you on his side of the line. If we actually see clearly God's love for us and if we're convinced that it still stands today and believe that he still cares and is still working, it's going to be so much easier to put God first. It's going to be so much easier to put God above our comfort and to invest in others and and, and study the Bible and and share instead of going after physical comforts. Uh, Because we're going to believe that God is really going to fill that gap in our lives and take care of our issues. It's going to be so much easier to put God above school and to study less to be with disciples and to be worried less. Uh, in, you know, instead of spending all your time worrying about good grades, to walk with the living God. Right. It's going to be so much easier to put God above work and say no to that job that's going to uh, you know, take us away from Jesus. And, and you know, it's going to be so much easier not to be so self-focused at our job. Uh, and to invest in others and to give to them and to put God above your kids and to show them that worldly success pales in comparison to spiritual success. Right. And I think just as I've been praying through this this week, I've seen just how so much easier it is to go after these things. When my perspective is that like God is still working and just working to have the faith that like God has better things in mind for me, that on that side of the line, that radical living will pan out, that God will show me greater things than I can even imagine. 
And when we're living like that, it's going to be so much easier because we'll trust that God has our best interests at heart on that side of the line. And ultimately, you know, what God wants for us is to know him by doing his commands, by loving people more than ourselves and setting our hearts and minds on things above. That's why he came and died for us. So we could know how great life with his is with him on that side of the line. And so I just want to encourage us all to walk away. What side are you going to choose to be on? Amen. Thank you so much. All right, let's stand and sing Stand in Awe.